We're in Mark chapter 14, uh, verses 41 through 52. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once, and he said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but left the Let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Mark chapter 14. We're looking at verse 41 and beyond. You'll notice in our reading this morning that we begin in the middle of a previous section, or at least the previous paragraph. Those sections are not in the original scriptures, but they're helpful. Help us find our way as we're reading through what is a long book together. But the sections are actually a bit artificial. We go back there because last week we were in this prayer of Gethsemane, Jesus praying in the garden. And the main business of our Lord Jesus in prayer in Gethsemane, was the business of not what I will, but what you will, Jesus says. Not what I will, but what you will, Jesus says before the Father. In other words, Jesus does not want to suffer. He did not want to be betrayed. He does not want to be counted among sinners either in the eyes of men or in the eyes of God, on the cross in the place of sinners. Jesus did not want these things, but he did want to ransom a people for himself from sin, death, and the devil. Jesus did want to bring glory to the Father and salvation to all who believe, and so not what I will, he says, but what You will. In our passage today, we're going to see a collision of wills. The Sanhedrin wills to put down their opponent once and for all. And so they send men with clubs and swords. Judas will wills to betray the master who called him and walked with him and and fed him the teachings of God himself. The disciples and all who follow Jesus in this crowded garden at the base of the Mount of Olives will to leave and to flee. There's a collision of wills. All of these are grasping at their own self-preservation. Everyone in the passage grasping, willing for their own self-preservation. But Jesus alone lays his life down in humble submission to the sovereign grace of the Father. There's a passage I want to take us to. Ephesians chapter 1, one of the most precious chapters in the scriptures. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6 say this, and, and look how it's flanked. Near the end of, chapter, of verse 4, it begins like this. 
in love, you hear that? In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. What is the will of the Father? That through Jesus, we would belong to the Father. Listen, according to the purpose of his will. Not my will, that I wouldn't suffer or be betrayed, that I wouldn't be abandoned and left alone. Not what I will, but yours be done. And what is the will of the Father? According to the purpose of his will, adoption to himself as sons through Jesus. And all of this is to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. You hear that sentence? It's a bit of a run-on sentence. It's got a lot of words in it, but it's flanked. It has parentheses around it, and the parentheses are in love and in the beloved. All the working of the will of the Father for his praise and his glorious grace lavished upon us is all bounded by love. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning as we see the beloved, the Son, beloved of the Father, betrayed, that we would see him as lover of our souls, that we have been blessed by the Father in the beloved, Father and Son, sending us your Spirit that we might be kept in your love. I pray that you would buoy up our confidence that we have been beautifully loved by one, by one, by our God. I pray that you would work these things. Give us the authority of your word to work in the midst of the congregation this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we're going to look at the, the happening of the passage, and then we're going to look at the characters. There are really only two categories of character in our passage. I'll let you in on that in just a bit, but for right now, the happening of the passage is the betrayal. There's a reason why we began back in verse one, or verse 41. Look at it with me. Mark chapter 14, verse 41. And he came the third time and said to his disciples, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? They're sleeping while the Lord is praying, being strengthened by the will of the Father. And then he says, it is enough. The hour has come. There's a moment that is here in this moment. And what is that moment? The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The hour has come. We've been marching toward this hour since Mark chapter 8. So half of the gospel of Mark ago, we saw Jesus say these words. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. We've quoted that how many times in our time in the gospel of Mark, right? We should know Mark chapter 8, verse 31 is key for our understanding of the happenings of what we're about to enter into. We are at the hour where these things start to unfold, and it begins with Jesus suffering many things. What's the first suffering? Well, the suffering in the garden, certainly, 
But much of that suffering is a suffering of immediate anticipation because the hour has come. And the first suffering of that hour is betrayal. The whole time, Jesus has remained focused, focused on and repeatedly speaking of his suffering, his rejection, his death, and his coming resurrection. He's remained focused, but the whole time the disciples have remained confused. Every time he starts talking about these things, they say things that are like, man, you must not have read the end of the Gospel of Mark. Well, they hadn't yet. It hadn't happened yet. They're confused. And at times, they're more than confused. They're obstinate, at best, faithless, unwilling to trust in the authority of the Savior to go about the work of the gospel. Jesus has remained focused in light of the reality that's pressing upon him, the reality that he is going to be betrayed. This is the hour his betrayer is at hand. Verse 41. The Son of Man is betrayed, and specifically, he's betrayed into the hands of sinners. I can't help but notice that it's for sinners that Jesus gave his life. And yet here he is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. So the happening is that Jesus is betrayed into the hands of sinners, but theologically, the happening spiritually, the real meaning of what is happening here, yeah, he's being betrayed into the hands of sinners, but he's actually giving his life for those sinners. This is literally the crux, the central reality of the entire work of the cross. Jesus gives his life as a ransom for many. Those are Jesus' words. He would give his life as a ransom for many. Many what? Sinners. He's betrayed into the hands of sinners that he would give his life as a ransom for sinners. We're going to quote it twice. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. We've already talked about love from Ephesians chapter 1. Now Romans 5, chapter 8 says, but God shows his love for us in that. How does God show his love for us? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans chapter five, verse eight. Think about it. Jesus is being betrayed by a sinner into the hands of sinners. And it's many such as these for whom he willingly goes. This verse from Romans is beautiful. It's compelling, but we can't miss the stark reality that it betrays. Yes, God loves us, all right? That's popular to say. It's, it's good, and congregations like to hear, and even the culture is kind of okay with when Christians say things like, God loves us. This is what the verse tells us. We ought to say it. I ought to say it more. But it also tells us that we're sinners. It tells us that our sin, even more than that we are sinners, it tells us that our sin required the death of Jesus in our place. Do You see, the passage doesn't just tell us that, that, we're, that, that our God loves us, but that the way he makes his, known, his love known to us is that while we were sinners, Jesus died for us. This is the stark reality of the gospel. It's the backdrop 
of Jesus' love for us. We are right to give attention to the love of Jesus, but we are wrong to lift that love out of the context of the reality of our sinfulness. At Cross Point Coast, we talk about the gospel rhythms. I, I see that uh, there's some little elves around Cross Point Coast that have been working really, really hard to make little improvements and decorate things and, and run an HDMI cable down to the nursery so that nursing moms can, can still be involved in the service and, and to set up little signs. And there's a sign, a picture in the hallway out here of the gospel rhythms. You might notice it on your way out. And in those gospel rhythms, the first of the two rhythms are celebration and connection. We celebrate the story of God. We celebrate the glory and grace of our God, the love of our God, the majesty and redemption of our God. We celebrate the story of our God, but then as we move to the second of the gospel rhythms, we move to connection, and the connection rhythm is the story of our lives. So we ask the question, how does the celebrating of the story of God connect to the story of our lives? The story of our God connects to us as recipients of his grace. You got, see, God is sovereign and glorious and majestic, grace giver and redeemer. The story of our lives is a people in need of grace and redemption. That's the connection back to our passage. We often seek to ask, when we're reading a passage of Scripture, who am I in this text? Where, where do I fit in this text? passage, and we love to make ourselves the heroes of the passage, like we're reading a passage about David, and I'm King David, and God is going to give me victory. I'm Moses, and I'm going to lead a people, and, I'm, and we tend to put, make ourselves the hero of the story, and if you look at those stories, not even Moses and David are the real heroes. But in our passage today, I think that there is little room for question. You see, in our passage today, there are only two options. There's the Lord Jesus and then there's everyone else. Yes, the everyone else betrays and abandons Jesus in a variety of different ways, yeah? But they still fall under the category of those who have abandoned Jesus. In our passage, there's Jesus, and then there's sinners. Jesus embraces the will of the Father. Everyone else is filled with either evil intent or, at best, cowardice. Jesus alone stands faithful. Jesus alone takes hold of the will of the Father without wavering. Who are you in this story? Are you Jesus? Or are you a sinner? It is a blessing that the Bible gives us these clear moments. Jesus is betrayed into the hands of sinners, sinners like you and I. We're in this passage, yeah. We're sinners. What sinners? What sinners came? If you look at verse 43, we get a little glimpse at some of those who came. Verse 43, immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12. And with Judas was a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. This is a mob that's been authorized by Sanhedrin. One of the commentators I was reading used the word posse. They put together a little posse. It's like the sheriff gathered together a crew and said, let's get Jesus. We're going to hunt him down. I mean, super difficult to hunt down Jesus that's been with them in the temple, that you know where he hangs out and where he prays with his disciples and those who are following after him. They're there to seize Jesus. Yes, the betrayal 
comes in the form of a kiss. But there is a violent thread that actually runs through our passage this morning. The word seize appears four different times right here in our little paragraph. Look at verse 44. The betrayer gave him a sign. He's going to kiss the man, seize him, and lead him away under guard. Verse 46. They laid hands on him and seized him, according to Judas's instruction. Verse 49. Day after day, I was with you in the temple, and you did not seize me there like you're violently seizing him here in the garden under cover of darkness. Verse 51. Young man's following after, barely wearing anything, and they seized him, and he ran off from them. There's a, a violence that Mark is bringing to us in his presentation. It's the same word throughout the passage. I, I think I've used the, the phrase about this little paragraph that it's a staccato narrative punctuated by violence. And you say, well, I'm not a violent person. Surely I'm not like one of those kind of sinners. The word seize doesn't really make sense with the way that I tend to operate. Well, don't worry. There's one who would betray Jesus with a kiss. Verse 44. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. Lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi. And he kissed him, and they laid their hands on him, and they seized him. This word kiss, it's not just a casual greeting. It's the, the, the word that is used is a word for the embrace of friends facing a long departure. The word for kiss in today's passage is a unique choice of words. Judas tells those who are with him simply, I'm going, the one who, that you see that I kiss, that I, that I greet, essentially, with a kiss, he's the one. And then Mark, when he describes the nature of that greeting, he uses a stronger word of the word kiss that is something more like a genuine, deep embrace of friends, where the common word for kiss simply means greeting. Mark could have used that word, but he uses the word that's actually used also in Acts. In Acts chapter 20, verses 37 and 38, it says, there was the apostle Paul, he's in Ephesus. It's actually one of my favorite little scenes in Acts. He's, Paul's pastored well the people of Ephesus. And he's there as he's about to leave on his last missionary journey. And he's telling him he's going to be carted off to Rome. And he'll probably die in prison there at best, more likely be executed. And he's telling the elders of the people of Ephesus, the church in Ephesus there. And it says in verse 37, there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and they kissed him with the same word that's used of Judas's kiss of Jesus kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. Judas embraces Jesus with the sort of embrace that says, this, this is it. I do not know what 
Judas was thinking. We're not told much of what motivated Judas. We're not told what is on Judas's mind. But whatever it is, he knows this is a serious moment with one that he spent three years of his life with. This is the embrace of friends, embracing a long departure. For Judas, it's a final departure. Judas is standing there. Think about it. I mean, I I really do. I I want you to call to mind the images of this moment. Judas is standing before Jesus, right there in the presence of the giver of life. And with an embrace, Judas hands Jesus, the giver of life, over to death. And in so doing, Judas secures his own death. I've reflected on this a lot, and I've, I've re- recognized that Judas's embrace of Jesus on this day sends Jesus to the cross and the hell that he would literally endure on the behalf of sinners. Meanwhile, Judas's own betrayal launches Judas himself on his own path to hell. It strikes me that for Judas to have kissed Jesus, for Judas to have embraced him like this, Jesus must have stood there and received the embrace. You don't receive the embrace of another who's embracing you with the long embrace of one who is about to be parted for a long time. You don't receive that sort of embrace on accident, passively, or casually. Jesus stood there and received him. That is exactly what he did. We know that because of the account in Matthew. Matthew 26, verse 50 says, Jesus said to him, friend. I'm not really worried about what he says after that. He says, do what you came to do. But friend? I can think of a lot of words that Jesus could have said after Judas's embrace. Friend? And I think of, of the, the words from John that say that Jesus loved them. He loved them to the end. Even the betrayer, even the betrayer, he loved him actively. Jesus stands alone. Absolutely. I'm nothing like Jesus. I can tell you right now, I, I can act a little bit like that occasionally, like barely occasionally, but I'm nothing like that. I, I've faced slights. I've encountered sorts of betrayals during the course of my life and ministry. And I can tell you right now, I have often raged at such wrongdoing. Do you know what I'm talking about? Raged. I've often offered many defenses for myself. And the word that I use after such a betraying embrace is not friend. And I don't sit there passively and receive it. I wonder, have I ever gone off to be with my father, Abba, simply to ask, what's your will in all this? Because betrayal's blindside, but if you think about it for a half a second, you can normally see it coming. Have I ever gone off to be with my father and say, what? What's happening here? 
Have I ever actually said in the midst of betrayal, I trust your purpose is sovereign grace. I trust, I do not want to be betrayed. I don't want to stand there and receive it. I want to offer up a variety of defenses and perhaps it is what's best for the moment. But one thing that I, I, have, I just wonder, have I ever gone and said, God, I trust your sovereign grace. How might you bear me up with endurance in the face of suffering? Lord, Father, What's your hidden design? Situate me so that wherever I stand when the betraying moment comes, the place where I'm situated is in the reality of enduring, faithful, new every morning, sovereign grace. I'm moved by the posture of the Savior. Judas, greetings, Rabbi. An embrace, friend. Judas offers the kiss of a betrayer, and Jesus returns the kiss of a friend. There's nobody in this room like Jesus. Jesus stands alone. Like I said, we're going to look at the two characters. We've already been introduced to them. We only have two categories of people in this passage. We have the people who scatter and Jesus. Specifically, the disciples scatter. Any composure that these sleepy disciples may have had falls to pieces when the betrayer shows up. They were just sort of sleeping, and Jesus is patient with them. Jesus goes to them three different times, and they're still sleepy. They're still groggy. The betrayer shows up, and this tiny little church falls apart. Look at verses 46 and 47. They laid hands on him, and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cut off his ear. Jesus said to them, how have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple, and you didn't seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they left, they all left him and fled. You see what they do? They're either grabbing swords and trying to like fight or something as if that is, has anything at all to do with anything Jesus has led them in at one single moment in all of Jesus' shepherding care. Or they flee. They run away. Jesus has spent three years specifically investing in 12 called out men And these men are to shepherd a little flock with all that Jesus has taught them after Jesus' death and resurrection. Along the way, he's been teaching them, he's been equipping them, he's been transforming them. And now, in this moment, it all seems so vulnerable. Three years of investment. Vulnerable. In this moment, Jesus' whole project to plant a tiny little mustard seed in this tiny little church is now so near to absolute collapse. All will fall away. Judas, one of the 12, 
And it says that repeatedly in the Gospel of Mark. He reminds us, one of the twelve. We already know that, but he tells us again, one of the twelve is the betrayer himself. Another rash disciple wields a sword rather than submitting to Jesus' own revelation. He's going to suffer, be rejected, and die. This must happen to the Son of Man. This follower of Jesus could have gotten all the disciples killed right there on the spot, and that tiny little mustard seed of a church would have been done. So vulnerable. And then Jesus crucified. And then what? Imagine if the soldiers would have reacted to that little act of violence and Jesus' investment would have been wiped out on the spot. The, The failure of the followers of Jesus is total. The betrayer himself lashing out in violence. All the remaining 11 disciples leave Jesus and flee. And a young man who's more brave than most to follow after Jesus a bit after the rest ends up running away naked. The point of Mark in here is not for us to speculate about the name of the young man. The point for us, as Mark records this for us, is that we would see the failure is total. There is one, and then there's everybody else. The whole purpose of Mark's account is to offer a punctuated account. If you look at the other Gospels, they offer more details. Mark, as he often is, is punctuated, a staccato refrain, complete betrayal, and utter scattering. From this moment on, Jesus is alone. Jesus himself recounted earlier in the evening, in Mark chapter 14, verse 27, he said, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And there's the shepherd standing alone. Let's consider Jesus alone. Verse 48, he asks a question. Jesus said to them, have you come out against me as against a robber? This word robber is often used negatively or pejoratively of zealots and other rebel movements. Jesus is saying, am I a a mere robber, a rebel? Jesus has consistently distanced himself from these movements throughout his ministry. He's opposed the teaching that would advocate withholding taxes from Caesar and sort of creating a little, just a a little financial rebellious movement. He's resisted other identifications with the rebel movements that were very popular in these days under Roman oppression. Jesus has taught his disciples to love their enemies and to bless those who curse you. Jesus has distanced himself from the robbers, and yet they come to him as though he was simply an insurrectionist, a robber. Mark chapter 15, in the next chapter, in verse 27, it says, and with him that is with Jesus, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Why was Jesus crucified between two rebels and thieves? Why? Because he was counted as one of them. They counted him as the third thief on the cross. He's not only betrayed into the hands of sinners, but on their behalf, he will give his life as a ransom, identifying with them. He was crucified as a robber. 
in the place of thieves, sinners like you and me. In verse 49, Jesus tells them, wasn't I day by day with you in the temple courts? When I was there, why are you coming out today with clubs and swords under the cover of darkness sometime well after midnight to arrest Jesus under the cover of darkness? I was with you daytime after daytime in the temple, in the public places. They asked him questions. And their posture before Jesus was civilized debate, right? They sent representatives from each one of the factions of the Sanhedrin to enter into civilized debate. And now under cover of darkness, we get a glimpse into what has been in their hearts the whole time from the earliest of encounters. In Mark chapter 14, we're told the chief priests, the scribes, were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. This has been in their heart the whole time they were asking questions. Perhaps we ought to ask ourselves, is that me? What stealth have I employed under some cover of darkness that my intentions, the intentions of my heart, would not be found out? I want to take us back to Psalm 36. We began our morning with this at the beginning of our celebration service. But in the beginning of Psalm 36, it says this, beginning in verse 1. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There's no fear of God before his eyes. Transgression speaks to the wicked in our hearts. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. And so we veil the treachery the wickedness, the transgression that's in our hearts with a variety of flatteries. We flatter our own hearts. We flatter ourselves with our pretending and performing in public. What do you know about yourself this morning that you think because you've kept it hidden from the eyes of others, your iniquity cannot be found out and hated? What do you know? that you think is hidden. I'll tell you, I, I, I've wrestled with this part of the message more than I did any others. In part, I was afraid that somebody would like start talking. <laughs> but also because I know you're probably scared. What do I know? I don't want to think about that. You see, we don't just hide what we know from others. We hide what we know from ourselves. We keep busy. We make justifications. We flatter ourselves so that we would not be found out and hated. Is it possible that you're hiding right here this morning in plain sight? At Cross Point Coast, we call this pretending and performing. And so I would ask you, how this morning might you be pretending that everything's okay? Offering up some performance that you think makes you sufficiently religious so that you can merit salvation or at least merit not talking about that other stuff. It's like we're trying to carve out a middle ground in today's passage. That there's Jesus, there's betrayers and people who wield swords, and there's like, you know, the rest of us. Just good church people. Friends, the disciples were good church people. 
They were Jesus's own church people. They're the disciples of Jesus. There's no category for us to carve out for ourselves with pretending and performing. I've been struck many times as a pastor at how often sins that has caused a former partner in the church to run off on his or her own, away from Christ and away from the church, that these sins were often there all along. The person refused to bring his or her doubts and failures into any sort of light. But it is now, as the Lord is with us daily, now is the time to come to him in humble integrity. Not with silly questions and a variety of performings. It's literally what the Sanhedrin and all the people did. They came to Jesus with a variety of questions. And the point wasn't to hear the answer. The point was to make known that they'd come up with a question. We do this in so many different ways. They prayed loudly and publicly to be seen in the eyes of men. They gave great sums to the coffers in the temple, also that their iniquity would not be found out and hated. And here is Jesus in their midst. And all of that pretending and performing, they miss the chance for the light giver to shine. And make no mistake, if Jesus can embrace a betrayer, Imagine if one of these people would lay down their pretending and performing and have gone to Jesus in the temple. Friends, God has given us so much here in this particular church, in the midst of the congregation. He's given us his word, which exposes us to both the truthfulness, the reality of our sin, and the abundance of his grace and love for us. Do you know that? He's given us friendships with one another. You know people that are friends, brothers and sisters together. You can grab a coffee. You can join a triad. You can ask to drop by a friend's house and talk, like actually talk. He's given us community groups where we can honestly consider how our lives have been actually challenged by our shared time in the word together. He's given us environments where he could say, was I not with you? Was I not with you day by day in the gatherings and in your friendships and in your community groups and the variety of other places where you could lay down your pretending and performing? So I call you this morning to embrace these times together. Embrace the environments where God has given us the promise of his presence with us. The Lord is with us there just as much as he was standing in the temple courts day by day when they failed to take hold of him there, but seized him under cover of darkness. In the presence of our Lord and one another, we don't have anything to hide. What are we hiding? Isn't the whole point of this passage in Mark to demonstrate to us today that the Lord stands alone and the rest of us are sinners? I mean, who's gonna stop up their mouth and you're a sinner? Yeah. Basically, all I'm saying, I'm not Jesus. There's one Savior. There's one who's righteous. There's one Redeemer. Yeah, I, I need him. I need him in, in, in some particulars I'd like to share with you today, you could say. All our pretending and performing does nothing to hide our reality of need. 
So we would do well to lay down our efforts to hide and come together in a genuine, humble honesty. Verse 49, Jesus says this. At the end of verse 49, he says, but let the scriptures be fulfilled, and they scattered. These are Jesus' last words on the matter of the betrayal. The scriptures have provided solid footing for Jesus throughout the whole of his life. Throughout the ministry, he clings to the word of the scriptures about him. I would ask, how does Jesus stand there in the face of his betrayer, in the face of his arrest that he knows will lead to his death, and kiss his friend when just hours before he literally fell down on the ground in prayer before the Father? How so? Well, first of all, he was strengthened in prayer by the Father. And secondly, he stands on the truth of Scripture. This is all we got. To be strengthened by the Father. When the Father and the Son has sent us his spirit to be strengthened. And he's given us his word. So we can stand firm and secure. So in closing, I would ask us, what does the scripture say to us today? The, The truth of the passage in Mark is simple and profound. You know it. Jesus stands alone. Everyone else stands in need. We can stand on the truth of the scriptures. We can say, okay, well, let scripture be fulfilled. I am a sinner. The word tells us Jesus alone is able to save sinners. Jesus alone is able to give his life to cleanse us of our sin. And the word tells us that we are those sinners who are in need of his saving grace. And it's amazing grace. You see, it's good news here in our passage. It tells us that the word of betrayal, the word of sinners, the word who would seize and those who would come to Jesus under cover of darkness, this is true. But all of these are a people in need of grace and God shows his love to us in this. While we were sinners, are you willing to be identified as such? Will you put your hand up and say, yeah, that's me. God shows his love to us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Heavenly Father, I pray that for those who are gathered here this morning, that you would humble us before Jesus alone. And we're going to see Jesus move. We're going to see him go to the cross, be identified with sinners, though he himself was without sin. We're going to see him give his life in the place of all who would humble themselves in confession. I am a sinner in need of grace. Lord, all that we bring before you is not our pretending and it's not our performing. No, that's us coming to you under cover of our own darkness. Lord, what we bring before you is an honest confession of need. And you show us your love. You would die for us, that you would cleanse us of our sin. Lord, we repeat these things to you. We remember them in prayer. And I pray this morning that you would apply that gospel, that cleansing reality, to lives this morning. Perhaps someone who has not confessed their sin. They've pretended they are someone they're not, or perhaps they've tried to hide from you in a variety of ways. 
I pray that you would apply this truth. There's no use hiding. Jesus stands alone. And that you would cleanse, that you would forgive, that you would restore and give life, that you would transform, leaving them not in their sin, but bringing about a practical righteousness and an overflow of walking with God in faith. Lord, I pray that that would be true of all of us, even if we have confessed our sin to you, even if we have taken hold of you by faith, that today we would again say, Lord, do your work of transforming grace. I have no righteousness to offer, but Lord, form your life in me. Thank you, Jesus, that you stood alone and you walked the path that remains for us to observe in the gospel of Mark, that you performed the gospel for us. Lord, we pray all of this in the name of our sovereign grace giver, our majestic redeemer. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.